Remember not the sins of my youth and my transgressions. Remember me according to your love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The apocalypse prediction business is a fool's game. Jesus describes the last day as coming like a trap in today's gospel reading and elsewhere like a thief in the night. He seems pretty clear that no one gets to know. Still, I might be interested in playing the game this one time. Because if you were to map Jesus' list of signs of the apocalypse onto a bingo card today, I might be about ready to stand up and have the caller check out my card so I can claim my prize. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, Jesus says, clearly referring to the lunar eclipse the other week, the longest in nearly 600 years. On the earth, there will be distress among the nations, confused by the roar of the sea and the waves, Jesus goes on, foretelling the result of the COP26 summit on climate change in Glasgow, the final product of which was a statement that couldn't summon the courage to say what truly needs to happen to reliance on coal, even as the habitability of many island nations hangs in the balance against the assault of rising seas. And so I am persuaded, church, that the apocalypse is upon us. The end is nigh. Now is the time, friends, to repent and return to the Lord. I say that today sincerely, but of course I could say it any other day with equal conviction. For name a time that has been without wars and rumors of wars, famine or disaster, false prophets, false messiahs, love grown cold, all heralded by weird and wondrous astronomical phenomena, portents in the sky. Name a time when the world would not be better off if the Son of God actually would descend with clouds and lightning to intervene in our mess and put things to write. And in such times, which is all times, the instruction of Jesus is clear. Stand up, raise your heads, for your redemption is drawing near. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, that season of waiting, expectation, the season of almost, as our senior warden, Kate Bacon, reminded us in this week's newsletter. The descriptor of the season that rings truest to me is the time between, as Fleming Rutledge puts it. Advent is a few weeks to stay focused on the time between when God's victory over evil and death is accomplished and assured through Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and the final triumph over the very evil and death that we see so clearly 
when we actually do stand up, raise our heads, and take a look around. It can be hard to believe that the redemption of the world is real, let alone that it is drawing near. But that conviction, and perhaps even more so the desire for redemption, is what Advent demands of us. For us to truly want Jesus to return, not only as a baby in the manger, but as light from light on the throne of judgment, to usher in the age when the powers of hell shall vanish and shadows clear away. But do we really desire that? That judgment? That end? More often than not, what we have in Advent is a bit of ambiguity about what it is we're waiting for. We may not always be able to say, oh yeah, Advent, that's about anticipating the celebration of Christmas as practice for anticipating the second coming. But we can definitely say, Advent is not Christmas. Christmas is what we're waiting for. Do not misunderstand me, I'm on board with this point of view, at least in part. Secular society has co-opted Christmas in such a way that it is, as they say, bigger than Jesus. Advent helps the church preserve its alternative calendar so that even as we as a country stand on the precipice between the capitalist holy days of Black Friday and Cyber Monday, the church enters a period of introspection. If this view of Advent provides an inoculation against the materialism of the times, so much the better. But the mechanics by which the church preserves its alternative calendar can be unhelpful. Take, for instance, the question of whether Advent ought to be considered a penitential season, a sort of Lent junior fast before Christmas, or hang-ups about what's an Advent carol and what's a Christmas carol, and when you should or shouldn't decorate or wish someone a Merry Christmas as opposed to Advent blessings or whatever. Doing that domesticates what is our most unique liturgical season. Christmas, Epiphany, Holy Week, Easter, Pentecost, and the season that follows all derive their meaning from the history of salvation. Lent derives its penitential character from the all-too-present fallenness of the human condition. Meanwhile, Advent's meaning comes not just from being a meditative overture, to a festive holiday that we like, Advent anticipates a future end that God has promised, but we may not be sure we want. I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest the inhibition to fully embracing the apocalypse might be the final judgment part. It might also, because we don't want to be mistaken for some of our co-religionists who are maybe a little too into the apocalypse, but I'm just going to set that aside for now. Probably most of us want the world to look more like the kingdom of God and would agree that the world deserves judgment for failing to do so. But we aren't so much on board with the same being brought upon ourselves. If we want to take our place in God's eternal kingdom, then we need to act like we want it at all. 
So in our life on this earth, we are obligated to love God with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is, to work for justice, perform acts of service and mercy, to worship together and pray for ourselves and one another. There are some perfectionists in the room, no doubt. But I think we're mostly mature enough in our faith to know that we're not going to get it all right, not with sin slithering through our veins. But it hardly assuages one's anxiety not to know what the scoring rubric is, what it takes to make the grade. We're pretty sure it's somewhere between my grace is sufficient for you and be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect, which isn't much surety at all. As a reader of scripture, one of the things I find most curious is when, if you think of the Bible as biography, stuff gets in that the subject of the biography definitely would have cut if they had editorial control. A great example of this is in the ninth chapter of Judges, when Abimelech attempts to control his edit in real time. Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years, but complex matters of politics and more so family led Abimelech to war against people who should have been his own. After killing a thousand men and women by burning the Tower of Shechem to the ground, Abimelech turned to the tower at the center of Tebez, and while attempting to burn it, too, a certain woman threw a millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Abimelech, not dead yet, called to his armor carrier and said, Draw your sword and kill me so people will not say about me a woman killed him. So the young man thrust him through and he died. But you all aren't fooled, are you? Abimelech, my dude, we saw the whole thing. You totally got killed by a woman. In the sweep of salvation history, Abimelech is a minor character who gets a scant 50-odd verses in a chapter of Judges. But the same thing happens with some of the heroes of our faith. Take King David, descendant of Tamar and Ruth, ancestor of Solomon and Jesus. We first encounter him as a boy come in from the fields, ruddy and handsome. The books of Samuel go on to record his great feats of defeating Goliath and bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It could have stopped there. But the story goes on to recount his seduction, his seduction of Bathsheba, his murder by proxy of Uriah, her husband, political and military losses leading to exile from Jerusalem, and at long last the indignity of infirmity in his final days. Whether you regard scripture as the literal word of God, the word of people inspired by God, just so many dusty scrolls or something in between, you might wonder why. And why? Because just like Abimelech getting killed by a woman and preferring we not see it, what the Bible tells us about David isn't royal propaganda. It's the messy truth of a human chosen by God whose chosenness 
cannot protect him from the predation of sin. Still, Jeremiah prophesies that something good will come of this. David and his line remain beloved. God will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which Jerusalem will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Christians understand that righteous branch to be Jesus, but no matter the import the Gospels place on Jesus being in David's line, make no mistake that the prophet Jeremiah states that the righteous branch is for David, not from him, and that the restored city of Jerusalem does not find its righteousness in the monarch with whom it is most closely identified, but in God alone. Take comfort, then, in your own prospects before God. For if even one such as David must rely on grace to right his relationship with the Almighty, you can scarcely expect to do better on your own. The church in Thessalonica, which Paul addresses in the letter we read today, was anxious about why the end they thought to expect imminently hadn't come yet. Some among their number had died without seeing the promise of Christ's second coming fulfilled. Paul assures them that God will see to the well-being of the dead, and he instructs the living to abound in love for one another and to pray for God to strengthen their hearts for holiness that they may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of Jesus Christ with all his saints. A hundred generations have been born since Paul wrote those encouraging words to dwell in loving community and to rely on God, not ourselves, to strengthen our hearts. Each of those generations witnessed signs that the end of all things was near, and each met their own end with the promise not yet fulfilled, one advent yielding to another, year after year after year. The same may happen to you and me. Perhaps it's even likely no matter how much the signs in the sky or the distress of the nations or the roaring of the sea points to judgment coming here and now. But the day will come when Christ will return to restore all things to God's perfection. And on that day, whether we greet our Lord coming in clouds descending or as sleepers wakened by an astounding voice, I pray that we each have the strength to escape the dread of judgment and that our hearts take courage. When the eyes of Christ turn upon you for your account, your soul may quail before the one whose might fuels the furnace at the heart of the sun and every star in the sky. But perceive also the grace 
of the one through whom you were loved into being, who tenderly knew you in your mother's womb, and who in this very moment quickens your mind and heart and breath. On this day, when another Advent begins, and on that day, when all Advents will end, stand up, raise your heads, see your redemption drawing near. Amen.